Hello. Thank you for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice by some of the most senior female energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Alexandra Shikhina. Today I'm talking to Dr. Amy Jadissimi, a Managing Director of LADOL, West Africa's 100% Indigenous Sustainable Economic Zone and Logistics Hub for Nigerian and multinational companies. In one CNN interview in 2017, Amy said that the one thing that I definitely did not want to do was work in oil and gas. After graduating from Oxford University with medicine and physiological sciences degrees, she was ready to be a doctor. But her career pivoted after working for Goldman Sachs and completing an MBA in Stanford. The return to Nigeria was a heartwarming experience that made her vision clear. Amy wanted to contribute to the development of her country and local communities and execute her own decisions. She joined her father's company, Ladol. In this episode, we talk about challenges working for a family business and how to minimize unhelpful stereotypes how hard it is to be heard as a woman, and especially as a woman of color. We talk about institutional racism and about her deep belief in people doing the right thing after all. Amy, very nice to be with us. Good day. Thank you for having me. I've been seeing quite a lot of uh, interviews with you online, BBC, CNN, and you very eloquently talk about the industry in Nigeria and Ladol. So we'll start in a very different way, ask you about where you grew up and how that shaped you. So I grew up mainly in the UK. I started going to a boarding school when I was five and I boarded pretty much my whole education except for one year where I went to day school and I did very poorly. So I think boarding school suited me much better. And growing up in uh, that sort of environment, where quite often I was the only black person, let alone person of color. It had a more profound impact on how I thought of myself than I realized. And I didn't fully understand the extent to which I had really missed out on getting that positive sense of self until I moved to Nigeria, you know, several decades later. And I always tell people that one of the best things for me about being in Nigeria and being surrounded by Nigerians and living here is that it does, it's it's more comfortable, I have a more positive self-image and it puts a lot of my experiences in my youth in context. Not to say that I didn't love, you know, I loved my school, I had a great time, I didn't feel in any way like I was missing out. I mean, I I was very privileged, but certainly the aspects of my sense of self-worth and how I saw myself that were negatively affected growing up as an other, I didn't come to realize that until I'd moved to Nigeria. And I think if I do have children, I would definitely want them to experience both sides and and spend more time in Nigeria growing up than I did. That's very interesting. And we'll come back to that, your journey back to Nigeria. Let's explore your, you went to Oxford University and you didn't study petroleum engineering or chemical engineering. You studied medicine and specific, I believe there was interest in surgery. Did you have a clear career path in your mind then? So to put it in context, I think for most 
children of African descent, you, the dream for your parents is for you to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I think to a certain extent, I am quite risk averse, even though it doesn't seem like it. And so I love the sciences. You know, I was a complete geek school, love math, chemistry, biology. So I naturally gravitated towards subjects that set me up to have a medical career. And I was very comfortable with that. I liked the idea of having a ready-made career for me when I graduated. I loved working in the hospital. I, you know, I loved learning about science and, you know, looking at research papers and all of that. I am, I am a naturally very geeky person and I'm not squeamish. So all of that made me, I think, an ideal medical student. And then at some point while I was studying medicine, I realized that it is a, the sort of career that does limit your life experiences in the following way. I mean, it opens up a whole set of new experiences and, and doctors see things and do things, um, especially ones that stay the course, unlike me, that are incredible and that other people will never get to experience. But at the same time, I realized that if I stayed in medicine, I would not have the time to engage in any other um, lifestyle or to engage in any other experiences professionally and that bothered me and so when after I graduated I went to the surgeon I, I had a job she happened to be a female surgeon a male surgeon may have given me the same opportunities but I went to the female surgeon I was supposed to start working for a hospital in Oxford and I told her that I'd been offered a job at Goldman Sachs and could I go and she made it really easy for me and said, well, I go and uh, come back in a year. So basically take a year out, which I had also never done. I'd worked really hard at school and really hard at university. So in my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to take a year out. I'm going to see what it's like to work in another career. And investment banking is a really good way of seeing so many different aspects of business. You work in lots of different sectors. So I really thought at the time that I would probably end up you know, coming back to the hospital. But I joined Goldman Sachs and I loved it. And it was, you know, another experience that was a lot of hard work, a lot of long hours, a lot of learning skills, all geek friendly skills, you know, a lot of maths, a lot of Excel, a lot of research as well. So <laughs> that, you know, there may be a theme there. And also working again at Oxford, I was privileged to work with, you know, some really brilliant people and people who are much smarter than I am. So every day you're learning things. And I love that as well. At Goldman Sachs, it was the same. You know, you're surrounded by brilliant people. And so they teach you stuff all the time and great sense of camaraderie. In the, in the group I was with. And I ended up staying there for three years before I went to business school. So how did the Goldman Sachs opportunity came along? A lot of my friends, and not a lot, but a decent number of my friends had gone to work in the city. And because doing medicine at Oxford takes six years, by the time I graduated, they'd already been working for a couple of years. And so they could tell me what it was like and I got a pretty clear insight into what is quite an opaque career. If you'd asked me the year before I applied to work for Goldman, what does investment bankers do? I wouldn't really have had an idea. But because my friends had gone into it, I was able to talk to them and they really got me interested in it. I also found out quite a few doctors go on to become investment bankers and the, the underlying skill set that you need, the kind of stamina and interest and attention to detail, there's quite a lot of overlap. 
And so I, I realized through, you know, talking to them and doing some research of my own, that investment banking would give me the sort of broad world experience that I was looking for. I felt that I might miss out on if I stayed as a doctor and purely worked in hospitals. And I thought it would give me a nice balance of, of life skills. And that even when I went back to work in a hospital, it would have been a really good experience to have had. And I'm one of those people that believes life is about the journey. And so the opportunity to have an experience like that, I just thought it was great. And so I applied and there are lots of interviews. It's really hard. So you don't really count on getting in because you do lots of tests and and you get interviewed by dozens of people and it's very time consuming, but somehow tricked them into thinking I was good (laughs) enough. And they they gave me an offer and and it was a great experience. You certainly don't sound risk-averse, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) So you proceeded with Stanford doing MBA, and then you've made a decision to come back to Nigeria? So as I was graduating from Stanford, again, I thought I was probably going to go back to Goldman. I didn't really, I kind of looked at the VC world and private equity, but I really enjoyed my time at Goldman and I basically thought I'm, I'm probably going to go back but before I go back let me spend some time in Nigeria because at that point in my life I'd spent hardly any time in here in, in Nigeria and so I went back initially thinking I would just stay for a few months and help my parents out. My mother was running a flower business at that time and I remember trying to talk her out of it because I thought it was a terrible idea and my father and I were both like no selling flowers in Lagos that's not a good idea anyway she had the last laugh because it turned out to be a fantastic business and I always tell people that for a while there her flower business was doing a lot better than Ladol was because Ladol didn't make money for a very long time. So, so she really, and I think she had to loan us money at one point. So, so she really did have the last laugh in a way. So I helped my mom out a little bit. And then at the time, my father was in discussions with Petro SA about possibly investing in Ladol. And they were putting together very, very early stages. This was like 2004. And they were putting together the financial model. So my first job working with Ladol was really just helping them with this financial model, putting their business plan together and using the Goldman, using the wizardry I learned at Goldman to make everything look fantastic. You know, the way investment bankers present, you know, one of those professional looking presentations and everything. So I put all that together for them as my first job. And in the course of doing that, I learned a lot about business. And I was working really close with my dad, probably a bit too closely, because at that point I didn't have an office and he had a really big desk in his office. And I would literally sit on one end of his desk, like on the opposite side in that corner. (laughs) So I had a corner of my dad's desk as my office. And I would sit there and, and, and just put this model together thinking, I'll do this for a few months and then go back to London. And I, and I loved it as well. And, and the thing I think that really appealed to me was that when I was an investment banker, I always felt there was something missing. And it may be because I come from a low-income, high-growth country that I felt this so acutely, but I always felt that there was something slightly off about the fact that we were making, that we were helping to make very important decisions about very big companies. But in many ways, we weren't involved in the nitty gritty. We weren't looking at the human side of it. We weren't 
building. For the most part, you're not building big businesses. You're not creating new businesses that are going to employ 10,000 people. You're sort of managing businesses that are already established and managing money and, and leveraging on leveraging. And even at that time, in as much as I enjoyed the intellectual aspect of it, and in as much as that is important because the ability to manage those companies and to, and to leverage and to create new financial instruments is an important aspect of growing economies. I, what I found at La Dole is that missing piece, which is about creating something substantial that wasn't there before, that adds a tremendous amount of value, that creates jobs. I mean, in our case, you know, creates infrastructure, creates facilities, building small new world. And it really touched a part of me that had that thing or that hadn't been filled when I was at Goldman. And so I got hooked. Uh, I mean, it was very difficult. And it was my dad and a group of his friends and a very dedicated uh, team of guys in the early days. I mean, you can imagine, like they started way back in 2001, nothing on the ground, trying to get the land, trying to, I mean, it's just been, you know, it's been a 20 year journey. I take my hat off to my dad and to Dr. Fawibe and, and, uh, and the other gentlemen who started on this journey. And I'm sure at the time they had no idea how difficult and the, it was going to be in the range of problems they were going to face. At the end of the day, it's, it's definitely been worth it, even though the financial rewards are not what I think everybody these days thinks of success in terms of financial rewards. And we do okay, but we're not, you know, we're not as most infrastructure developers will tell you we are cash poor and we're, you know, we're always cash poor infrastructure developers. But you get the satisfaction in doing the job. And that sounds so cliche, but it's definitely true, particularly because the doing the job gives such visceral rewards, you know, that you can actually touch and feel and see year on year the development of the zone. I think it's true and it's now been proven by so many different research pieces that success is not about money. And in fact, the more money you have, there's a correlation of unhappiness when it reaches a certain level. So I think you've definitely found, it's great that you found that what actually makes you happy. I think the best thing for me about all the experiences I've had, including Goldman, is that they prepared me really well for what I'm doing now because you do have to work independently and you have call on what I had learned in each of the institutions I you know, had the privilege of attending in order to do my job on a daily basis, whether it's building business models or talking or negotiating with contractors or building key sites and warehouses, even though I'm not an engineer. So, and, and most importantly, managing people. They say all business is about managing people at its heart. That, you know, that's the key to success of the business. And we manage a very wide range of people at Ladol. So all of those life experiences have really helped. And obviously it doesn't come without extreme challenges along the way. And one of the things I wanted to explore, which is it's not always hard to work in a family business, it comes with its own set of, I'm sure, advantages as well as hurdles. Did you ever feel that it was a challenge? And how did you overcome that? The first thing I did was when I realized I wanted to stay and that my father thought it was worth keeping me around. I think he had his doubts initially because we'd never worked together before. So he was probably like, uh, what's this about? But I think, it, you know, after we'd been working together for a few months, I think he realized that I could add a lot of value. And I realized that I was prepared to do this. But it was apparent to me 
both because of the type of business it is and because my personality is such that I tend to immerse myself fully in what I'm doing. But if I was going to do this, we had to have an objective understanding of my role, meaning that, you know, we had to put a proper contract in place. We talked about the level of autonomy, the reporting lines, the way I would be assessed, you know, all these things. And so right from the beginning, we discussed and set parameters such that I would not be judged based on the fact that I was his daughter and that on my side, I would not be, I'm not taking the job to kind of continue the family business per se. I'm taking the job as a professional because I believe in the business case. And this is what I want to spend my time doing. So we tackled it head on at the very beginning. And I think that was important, not just to myself and my father, but also my mother and my siblings who at the time weren't working in the business. But I always think it's best to be upfront and as direct with people as possible. And so that's how it was. I think it helps that my father and I have a similar personality, which is that we're very business oriented and we're quite dispassionate when it comes to business and making decisions. And so I think that makes it easier because, you know, nobody's taking anything personally. And we always put, and we're both very passionate about this business and really care about it a lot. And we're both willing to sacrifice for it, which is just as well, because we had to make a lot, we had to make a lot more sacrifices than we thought we would have to, but just as well that we were prepared to do that. So now two of my brothers are working in the business as well. And we handle it the same way. You know, everybody has contract, everybody has to perform, everybody gets in trouble if they don't perform and they don't. The way I manage is, particularly with senior management, I measure you on your output. There are certain deliverables and KPIs that as a senior manager you have to achieve. And either you achieve those or you don't. And to the extent that you achieve them, that will drive promotion and reward and, and everything else, whether you're my brother or not. And similarly, to the extent that you don't achieve them, things will have you reset. And I find that that level of objectivity is really important, particularly because there are so many stakeholders in Ladol beyond the family. It's really transitioned from being a family business to being more like conglomerate with a lot of moving pieces, a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of shareholders including one of the banks here is also a shareholder. So, so the corporate governance is really important. But right from the beginning, even before my involvement, you know, my dad's an accountant and he actually set up Arthur Anderson in Nigeria. So right from the beginning, corporate governance was something that's just in his DNA. Like it wouldn't have occurred to him to set up a company any, any other way. And I'm the same because I think those mundane processes and procedures, those details and, and those long documents that people that are very unglamorous and that take a really long time to put together and to implement, to me, those are the key things that define the success of the company. So having them, having the right ones, thinking about how you'll actually operate company and how you'll grow the company. And these are things that we thought about right from the beginning. So that sounds amazing and very organized. On the internal side, how about your partners or the teams? Did they embrace you similarly or did you feel like you really had to earn that respect? It varies. I mean, I would say that in general, being in Nigeria has restored my faith in humanity. And I always say that to people because in an environment like Nigeria where you have weaker controls in every dimension over what people do people can get away with a lot more you see people's true character and in some cases what we found as we grew the business because particularly because we were servicing the oil and gas industry which is very opaque 
across the world has a lot of big multinationals who behave in ways they shouldn't behave when they come to countries like Nigeria. We found that I, what I found is that in that environment, you still have people who are willing to risk their jobs, their lives sometimes to do the right thing. So even without having the normal social structures there and the sense and the accountability there, people still do the right thing. And I've just been overwhelmed by that. And I mean, people do the wrong thing as well, obviously. But, you know, in an environment where, for the most part, they're incentivized to do the wrong thing. For someone to ignore all of that and take a huge risk and do the right thing at great personal cost to themselves. And throughout the course of Ladol's development, I've seen people do that several times. And it really does restore your faith in humanity. And you just see that. And it also restores continually my faith in this business that even though it's hard and then there are so many people who are fighting us and, and there's so many issues and, and so much I see so much nasty behavior that has such dire consequences for the country in the face of all that the fact that there are still you know that we're still able to grow year on year that there are still people who are just inherently good there's no other explanation for them doing the things they do because they don't have they haven't been given the right information they haven't been given the right data but they just instinctively in some cases feel that this is just wrong and even though it's wired me in my personal interest to, to do this wrong thing, I'm not even going to consider doing it. So that kind of thing restores your faith. I think in terms of my personal experience as a black woman Nigerian, I've also experienced more racism in Nigeria than I have anywhere else. Um, you know, some way I get treated is purely to do with the fact that I'm a woman and to a certain extent, um, sometimes to a very large extent, we're in a misogynistic society, but also th there is a higher level of racism shown here by foreigners towards Nigerians. I'm not saying all foreigners are racist by any means, so don't get me in trouble with that. There are some, there are wonderful people everywhere, but I'm just saying on average, the level of racism that I felt directed towards myself by foreigners in Nigeria is a lot higher than the racism that I felt in when I was in London, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing. And I sometimes talking internationally and I'm presenting, and I know there are multinationals in the audience. I, you know, I often say, especially if there's CEOs are there, that you have to understand that if you're sending, that the people that you're sending into these low-income, high-growth countries represent your company. And they have a lot of power over what your company does and how it sees and how it's seen and how it's perceived. And after what happened to Nike, you would think every multinational would now be very careful about how they ran their overseas offices, but that doesn't happen. And maybe it's that you don't get a lot of people volunteering to come to places like Nigeria, I don't know. But definitely if I'm having a meeting with a company in Europe and then I have that same meeting with a company here, quite often there is a big difference, a big difference between the quality of people and their attitude in Europe versus people I'm meeting here. To have a meeting with a company in Europe where they're talking about sustainability, they're talking about making the supply chain more efficient and more transparent and they're completely genuine about it. But the team they send here incentivize basically just to extract and they haven't really translated thinking at the head office down to what's happening in Nigeria. And I think that's quite common across a lot of low-income, high-growth countries. And I'm hoping, I've definitely seen that improve over time. Sometimes I've seen it improve because they hire 
Nigerians. And so they put, and then they give them decision-making power. So there's definitely a trend we've seen with a lot of multinationals, I'd say in the last decade, of hiring senior level, experienced Nigerians and and, or promoting them and giving them a lot more power over decision making and that tends I think to also have a very positive impact for the company and all of this has been researched and there's a lot of data on this the same way you see the impact of having women on boards having diversity in decision making and everything has the same impact and so I think the quality and the ways decisions are being made in these companies has improved over time and so my personal experience of being dismissed or people just outright being rude or otherwise not being unprofessional in their treatment of me has decreased over time. That might also be because I'm getting really old. And so people, <laughs> but I think in general, you know, things have changed. But that's a long answer to your question. Uh, as a black woman, as a Nigerian, those characteristics that I have more of an impact on how people treat me than the fact that I'm working for my dad. And that honestly, treatment is shocking to me, but I've never been been in Africa. So I I can tell you a story. I've been in a meeting where before I was CEO, we had a South African who was CEO. And we were in a meeting with, I won't tell you what nationality, but it was with a multinational company, a very huge company, very successful. And And we were negotiating with their country manager. And it was just a weird negotiation because he was arguing about things when I came and he was arguing about things that didn't need to be argued about. It was just odd. And so we lit, we tried an experiment where I would say something and then our CEO who was sitting next to me would say the exact same thing, literally almost word for word. And it worked. So if I would say it, we would get pushback. Five minutes later, he would say the same thing and there would be agreement. And we tried that for about half a day and we actually found, you know, it was because I don't know why the CEO had this reaction to me, but the assumption was that we concluded was that he just wasn't comfortable negotiating with and operating on on an equal level with me. At the time, I still had my youth, so a youngish looking (laughs) black woman. You know, it is frustrating, but it's not unusual. It happens. I have never been in a meeting with men and women when I told this story when there's a woman in the room who hasn't had the same experience it's very common especially as you get higher up the ladder it's very common and it doesn't just happen in meetings between companies I have female friends working in cities across the world and it's also it's not just it's also global you know more good news so it happens in in every country in the world you're a woman working in a corporation and it's all fine for the first two or three years but when you're a woman who now gets to the level where you're managing men and men are reporting to you firstly it's harder for you to get promotion into that position and then when you do get the promotion into that position you find yourself having these strange experiences that initially you hesitate to ascribe to your sex but eventually you have to ascribe it to some form of sexism because nothing else makes sense. And quite often the men in these situations don't recognize what they're doing. So when I have these conversations, I also want to point out that there are no, there aren't necessarily villains here. We have institutional racism, we have institutional sexism. So people have to be educated, they have to be taught. You have to have training programs within your company to uncover 
people's biases and to hold their biases up in front of them to make them aware that they exist and that they are affecting their decisions they're making on a daily basis and that there are things they can do to make better decisions that will be better for their professional and their personal life. So these are not, it's, uh, for me, it's always better to approach this from the perspective of wanting to align interests and wanting to bring everyone together. And nine times out of 10, well, maybe seven or eight times out of 10, when you do the kind of exercises like organizational behavior exercises or or other psychological experiments you can do to uncover people's biases and you put people through those kinds of training programs seven or eight times out of ten people modify their behavior because no one really wants to be sexist no one not that many people want to be sexist not that many people want to be racist and even if they want to be those things there's so much evidence out there now of how damaging it is from a professional perspective, and I don't just mean because you know people won't like you because it's not politically correct, I mean because your business will not perform as well. And there's so much evidence of that out there now that people will do what they can to correct that behavior. So you've got the best of three. You're black, you're a woman, you're also young. So it must be tough sometimes. I cannot even imagine. What for those younger people out there who do feel self-doubt and who do feel dismissed sometimes in the meetings, can you give some advice on what you would do? So I think it's really important to understand the context in which you're operating. So those biases I was talking about, we also have them. Malcolm Gladwell, who is the patron saint of 2013, 40-somethings and all business school students, wrote this book called Blink. And in that book, he talks about various experiments you can do online that uncover your bias. And it's actually quite important to take that exercise for yourself to understand how you see yourself and how the world sees you. And that will also help you to think about what you want to do with your life. And once you decide what you want to do with your life, that information will also help you plan how you're going to achieve those things. So I think a really good self-knowledge and a really good understanding of the institutions and the society that you're operating in is key. Because at the end of the day, everything's about people. So I think if you can get this knowledge, if you can get this data, and you, and you have this clear understanding of yourself and your context, and you know what you want to do, you know what you're naturally interested in and what you're naturally drawn to, whether it's agriculture or technology or finance, you can then start to chart your career path. And whatever career path you choose, understand right now that for most careers, for all careers, I would say, if you want to rise to the top and you want to make a big impact in that specific career, you're going to have to work really hard. And that includes if you're a stay-at-home dad or you're a stay-at-home mom. So if you're a stay-at-home dad, let's pretend we're all in Sweden, and you're a stay-at-home dad and you're raising your kids, you will have to work really hard and give everything you have to that job. Just as if you're a woman and you're rising to the top and you want to run Goldman Sachs one day, you're going to have to give everything you have. It's really difficult to be, uh, in my experience anyway, to be a success in anything without being um, incredibly hard at it. And I, I do read things other than Malcolm Gladwell, I promise. But I did also read his book, Outliers, where he talks about 10,000 hours. You have to spend 10,000 hours doing something to, to be really good at it. Now, 
That isn't to say that one has to define one's success in terms of being very overtly successful at something. But for me, in order to feel that sense of accomplishment for myself personally, in order, in order to be comfortable that at the end of the week or the year or my life, I won't have any regrets. It's really important to me to know that I've given my all. And I think for a lot of people having that, it will be the same thing. And so if you're a young person starting out right now, I would say in addition to all that self-knowledge, in addition to planning and working hard, don't be swayed by the crowd. Don't measure your success in terms of what other people think success looks like. It's so important that you measure your success in terms of what matters to you. And if, if like me, what matters is knowing you've given it 100% and the outcome is what the outcome is, but I made the best decisions I could, I gave it 100% and it is what it is, great. If it is, you know, I want the share price of my company to be a trillion dollars, then that's fine as well. There's no judgments here. It's just really important that that's a value that you ascribe to yourself and you don't allow other people to ascribe those values for you. And I think that for young people today, they're in a much more very fortunate position because it's much more acceptable to define your own path than it was when I was growing up. And that can lead to them being less sure of themselves as well, because maybe you think you have too many options. But the truth is, I think it's great that you're growing up in a time where it's a lot more acceptable to be unconventional than it was when I was growing up. It's a lot more acceptable to, in a whole bunch of places across the world, to have 10 different careers. You know, these are all opportunities that you should embrace. But in embracing them, make sure that as you go from one place to another, as much as possible, you're following your passion. Yeah. And you said a very important thing in the beginning is it starts with analyzing yourself and understanding yourself. If you have that understanding of your values and your nature and what you lean towards, then you won't be swayed by the crowd because you will have that self-awareness so i think those two things are if you don't have self-awareness you can't not follow the crowd that's naturally what you would do i want to talk about the professional challenge you've experienced that really you know none of the careers especially staying 16 years uh, in the company is easy and you've seen many transformations i'm sure of la dole it might not be the challenge in that specific company but can you think of one example where you truly overcame an obstacle and it really changed who you are um i think that in the course of growing this business there have been many times where we have come across challenges that challenge, firstly, my sense of how the world works. I, I, I'm not a naive person, but I always thought that eventually people would do what was rationally correct. You know, people would behave rationally in terms of, well, this is going to grow the market, you know, uh, and this is the win-win-win for everybody, so that's what we're going to do. But I underestimated the extent to which one, there's a lack of exposure and knowledge in the world, so people don't understand what the rational decision is sometimes, and the extent to which people could be short-sighted, the extent to which people sometimes just don't care um, because maybe of their narrow self-interest. And I under underestimated that quite dramatically. And it took me a while of fighting many battles in order for Ladol to have a space in the market, in order for the market to be free and not dominated by a monopoly and talking to so many people and 
and having so many unexpected allies uh, come up as well to really learn that lesson. And, and it, sounds, it, it sounds like I did go from naive to not being naive. Maybe that's what happened. But in overcoming these challenges and lobbying and you know, explaining and sometimes begging people to do the right thing effectively, I think it, it really taught me a lot about human nature and how things work. And as I said before, the end result is being here has restored my faith in humanity. There are people who will do the right thing just for the sake of doing the right thing at great cost to themselves. And that's a really important lesson. But at the same time, from a business perspective and from the perspective of wanting to see Nigeria and Africa achieve their potential, I now understand how difficult it is, how complex it is, how ruthless we have to be, how committed and evangelical we have to be to the cause of correcting the market failures in Africa. Because we are fighting against very powerful global status quo that doesn't care what the right thing is. And it's not that they don't care because they're not good people. For the most part, they either don't know or don't understand or they don't have the tools, they don't have the leeway to make the right decision. So it's enormously difficult. It's going to be enormously difficult making the world more sustainable and creating the kind of environment that we want for our kids and and all the rest of it. And things like what's going on now with COVID-19, as awful, awful as it is, actually help in a way, at least I think it will help because it, it shows people what they're risking. It shows people what the true cost is of not behaving rationally, of not living sustainably, of not making the right decisions, being complacent. And, I, and so I think that that realization was painful and sad, but at the same time, it re-energized me for the fight. And I'm so passionate about what we're doing and, and so committed to this vision that we have that it just makes me gear up for the fight in different ways. But, you know, it definitely gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what we all live for, I think. So I will ask, uh, always the last question is, can't be Malcolm, but one book <laughs> that you would recommend. You know, I read a book called Orwell and Ch- Churchill and Orwell comparing Winston Churchill and George Orwell, how during their lifetimes they fought against their various status quo. Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by Thomas Rick. And it's a, it's a history book, but it's a history book that actually teaches you the power of dissent and how the, in retrospect, we look at George Orwell and, and Churchill and Winston Churchill and you think, wow, these are really successful people. But they became successful by standing against the status quo at key moments in history and taking risks, which at the time they took them were very high stakes with very low chances of success for both of them. But they both stood against institutions that they came out of in favor of what they believed in. And, you know, it's a very well-written book as well, and it's kind of an unusual one. But yeah, so Churchill and Orwell, the fight for freedom. Amazing. Thank you. Amy, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I've learned a lot. Otherwise, have a lovely rest of the week, and we really hope to see you soon in one of our events. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast. Please follow us on Spotify or iPhone. And don't forget to subscribe to be the first to listen to the new weekly editions. You can do that at Oil & Gas Council website, iCouncil. Have a lovely week and stay safe.